Romans 15.4 says, For whatever, 15.4, was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. The author is Paul of the book of Romans. He says, The things that were written in earlier times, probably a primary reference to the Old Testament, notice the phrase earlier times, was written for our instruction, our learning, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, may the God who gives perseverance, God is the one who gives it. If you're feeling like giving up, God will give you perseverance. And he gives encouragement, notice. Grant to you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Now, if you keep going to your right, there's 2 Timothy. It's a little bit further on to the right. Just keep turning pages till you get to 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is a familiar section, but I just want to remind you, this is another statement about the value of Scripture. Namely, as we go through the Old Testament, 2 Timothy 3.16, same author, Paul, who had a lot of mistakes in his background, a lot that he could regret himself, said, all Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture, not some, but all Scripture is inspired by God, literally breathed out by God, and is profitable. Notice the list. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man or the woman of God, all followers of Jesus Christ, might be adequate, equipped for how many? For every good work. Now, I want you to keep those scriptures in mind as we turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel 13, Monday morning quarterback. You may have noticed in my uh, title here and in the graphic up there, that's not a typo, by the way. The word morning is not misspelled because I have something in mind that's different than just Monday morning as in the early morning hours. The word morning was spelled that way because this section brings up issues of mourning over sin and regret. David was living with a couple promises clearly in the rearview mirror. Here's what they were. In 2 Samuel 7, God told him, I will build a house for you. I will make a house for you. And he promised that from his own body, from his loins, he, he gave him what we call the Davidic covenant, that the, the throne of David would ultimately uh, bring about the coming of the Messiah, the greater David, who would bring deliverance to the world. So David had been given that covenant that one of his offspring, one of his future generations, namely Jesus, would rule on the throne of David. And that, ruler, that rule would never cease, we're told in other scriptures. He had that. And then in 2 Samuel 12, he was told something else. He was told that what he had done with Bathsheba, the sin that he had committed in the sexual sin of adultery and the murder of Uriah, that the sword would never leave his house and that what he had done secretly, God was going to allow to take place openly. He was living in the promise that God was faithful and that covenant, that Davidic covenant from the line of David would not shift or change despite David's own weaknesses. But yet, God also told him he was going to pay some significant consequences for his actions in that fall that we read about in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And life is kind of that way. We live our lives. Here's, here's the personal application before we get into the story. 
We live our lives in the new covenant. We are loved by Christ. He saved a wretch like me. But decisions that I make within that framework of the time that I have on this planet do bear out consequences. That is, whatever a man sows to, he will also what? He will reap. You reap what you sow. Now, we are in the new covenant. Praise God. It's all of Jesus. He finished the work. I can't add anything to what he's done. Amazing grace is truly amazing. But how we live our lives, what uh, kingdom we are actually serving as we live our lives is extremely important. And here's the account. And it's, it is a, it's a deeply profound story. It's probably going to hit a lot of us very deeply. But here is the record. Now, it was after this, 2 Samuel 13, 1, that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Now, what we know about David's family life is that he had broken the law and he had become polygamous. He had multiple wives. And so from these different wives, he had children. The children, if you want to just note, uh, that are recorded, that were born to him in Hebron, are recorded in 2 Samuel 3, verses 2 through 5. But there, his wives are named, and children that are born to David are named there. 2 Samuel 3, verses 2 through 5. In that list of children that are in that uh, verse I just gave you, Absalom is named, and so is Amnon. Now, they were brothers, but they were from different moms. So Tamar was actually the sister of Absalom from the same mom, Amnon was a half-brother. So you're already getting major characters in verse 1, just like when you watch a movie and some of the main characters are introduced to you. That's kind of what you get in verse 1. You have Absalom. By the way, if you take just a close look at his name, Abba is father in Hebrew. And Salam, or it's a form of Shalom, is peace. So Absalom's name actually could be translated father of peace. But this is not going to be a very peaceful episode. So he's the son of David. There's a beautiful sister, Tamar. And Amnon is also the son of David. And notice it says that Amnon loved her. Amnon, the son of David, loved Tamar. He loved his half-sister. This story is going to cause a lot of mourning, as I mentioned. And in many ways, uh, I have here in my notes that David will become a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He would become a man of sorrows, much like it was said of Jesus on Isaiah 53, 3. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. But Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief because he had to bear our grief and our sorrows. So we need to read the story in the shadow of the cross. And of course, our own stories, we need to make sure that they're rooted in the shadow of the cross. But here's the real issue that we have. Even after becoming a Christian, we have a struggle. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. 1 John 2, 16 and 17. In James 1, verses 13 through 16, just write it down. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one, is, uh, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. 
Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. That's James 1, 13 through 16. James 4, verses 2 through 4, says something very similar. That, you know, we have not because we don't ask. We ask amiss that we might spend it on our own pleasures. We have a problem in our world, a problem in our fallen natures of lust. And a lust um, in, in this set, setting, in this context, would be a longing for what is forbidden. And that's what happens in the case of Amnon. Amnon begins to lust after his sister, and he's longing for that which is forbidden. He's not to touch her. That relationship is wrong. The Old Testament makes it clear. The law makes it clear. There's no relationship that it should exist between uh, the, this this kind of familial relationship. And Amnon was so frustrated, verse two, the ESV said he's tormented because of his sister Tamar, that he made himself ill. For she was a virgin and it seemed hard, or ESV, NIV, impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Now as Amnon watched his sister and interacted with her and maybe watched her from a distance, he began to have feelings lustful feelings towards her. The biblical account is going to say that he loved her, but I don't think he really loved her. I think he was in lust for her, but I don't think he really loved her. And so as the, as the days went by and he would see her or interact with her, he began to continue to fan the flame of that lust. And he began to think and ponder. And it, she was a beautiful young woman and and. You know, I've said in the past that appreciation of beauty is one thing, but lust is when you begin to take it to the point where you begin to imagine what you would do to that person or you want to be with that person. And it is, it is obviously out of bounds. And this situation, of course, is doubly out of bounds for Amnon, but he, he continued to let it fester. And this is, this is one of the problems, and this is what James 1 is really saying. It's saying, look, when you have a lust problem, you have to decide not to feed it. If you feed sin, it will become bigger and bigger. If you starve it, it will die. If you cut off sin, that is, you don't feed it, you don't ponder it, you don't allow yourself to have access to things that stumble you, eventually... And I, I want to give you encouragement because some of you have been struggling with habitual sin patterns. Those habitual sin patterns can be broken. They can be. But if you feed them, be assured that that lust will become bigger and bigger and it will envelop your life to the point where sometimes you'll have a hard time thinking of anything else. And with the problems we have in our society, we've mentioned pornography and other things in the past, people continue to feed their lusts and they eventually act out on their lusts because they get consumed by it and then the enemy uses it. And so Amnon was frustrated and he was thinking of ways that he could be with his sister, but every time he examined a different angle, he realized he couldn't. And maybe part of the the challenge that he was running into, and I put challenge in quotes, is he was thinking of Absalom, her brother, and what would happen if he ever said something or tried something. 
But Amnon had a friend, and you might want to put friend in quotes because he's really not a true friend. Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab. We'll find out later that Jonadab is David's nephew. He was the son of Shemiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very shrewd or crafty man. Now, the word for shrewd here is a Hebrew word which can mean wise. Sometimes in a positive sense, it means wise. But it can also mean cunning, crafty. And Jonadab shows up in the account as Amnon is, has this unhealthy view of his sister. And Jonadab, the so-called friend, is now introduced to us. He's another character in the account. The wisdom that he's going to give to his, to his friend, so-called Amnon, is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil, James 3.15. Let me just give you an application point. If you have a so-called friend who is trying to give you angles to commit sin, then can I say that person is not your friend? 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, bad company corrupts good morals. If you have a friend that's been bringing you down and trying to talk you into compromise, they are no friend of yours. And there are Christians in the Christian church who have become bent on compromise and they'll go to certain so-called friends to hear what they want to hear and they won't go to other friends who are true friends who will tell them what they need to hear. A true friend will tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. It's a good way to measure whether or not someone's actually a true friend. And he said to him, O son of the king, uh, Amnon was David's firstborn. We find that out in 2 Samuel 3. So he's kind of the crown prince or the heir apparent to the throne. He won't, he won't get the throne, but at this time, that's how he's seen. So Jonadab says, O son of the king, why are you so depressed? Uh, the ESV says, so haggard. NIV says the same thing. Morning after morning, the New King James says, you're becoming thinner day after day. Bro, you don't look so good. What's up with you? Go ahead, share it with me, brother. And every day, Amnon would wake up. You're the son of the king. What's wrong with you? Why are you depressed? I, I think a friend has a, a natural right to ask that. Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, okay, here it is. I'm in love with Tamar the sister of my brother Absalom. Now, she's actually his sister. She's Amnon's sister as well. He's her half-brother. But she, at this point, he calls her the sister of Absalom. He says, I'm in love with her. It's driving me crazy, man. I can't think of anything else. But I can't be with her as well. What's, what's, a, what's a young man to do who's the crown prince? This is a bummer, man. Now, if you were Jonadab, if you were the prince's true friend, what would you say? Well, sorry, dude, but you can't have her. And you ought to just stop that thinking right now. There's plenty of girls around. She's your sister. Don't go there. Don't do that. Don't give it another thought. But he didn't do that. Jonadab, this cunning so-called friend, said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend that you're ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me some food to eat 
Let her prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Here's a plan. Lay down, pretend you're sick. Your dad's obviously gonna come to visit you. He'll be concerned about you. And then tell him, Dad, I don't feel so good. Can you get Tamar to make me some food in my sight? And let me eat it from her hand. What? What in the world is going on? So Amnon lay down. He pretended to be ill. Some of you need to mark that because you've done that before. Heated up that thermometer. <laughs> oh, and when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. <laughs> now, in Hebrew, it's interesting. The word for cakes there may imply, the root word is heart, and it may imply a heart-shaped dumpling or a cake. And when you guys go out there after first service and you help out Royal Family Kids Camp, if you want, they could make a pancake shaped in a heart. Or if you want Mickey Mouse, they'll make it for you. Whatever you need, they'll make it for you. Can I picture Amnon? I need some pancakes, Dad, heart-shaped. And let Tamar bring them to me. If she's got a puppy with her, can you bring a puppy too? Because I don't feel good. I want to pet the puppy and then I want to have the heart-shaped pancake with some cinnamon swirl syrup. <laughs> what in the world? Now, if you were dad and it was a school day, what would you say to this guy? Get your <laughs> self out of bed. <laughs> yeah. And... Go to school. She ain't making you any. Put an ego in the toaster and get moving. What do you mean you want, you want, to, you want to eat from her hand? You wimp. <laughs> right? But no, David sent to the house for Tamar, seven. And he said, go now to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. Now, what's David's problem? David's a warrior, but he's not a very good dad. And look, we've all probably can be accused of being soft on our children. Some of you may be soft on your kids. There's an old saying that every parent has to apologize to their firstborn. You'll get that in a second. Because new par parents, you know, we're all, we want to take care of them. You take about a thousand photos, you know, in a day. Then the third one comes along. You don't have no photographs of them. They don't even know if they're part of the family. <laughs> Are there any photos of me when I was a baby? And was I adopted? When I, was I shot down from, by aliens? You got all the pictures of him. Anyway, just the reality of life. I apologize if you're down the list of those born. But Now, David sent for her. Now, some of you may be thinking, wow, this sounds familiar. Because David sent for Bathsheba. He inquired about her. He found out she was married, and then he sent for her. And what is going to happen in this account is eerily similar to what David did in his own fall. And it brings up some questions, and some of you have these questions. You've heard these questions asked before. There's a scripture in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, and it talks about the sins of the fathers will be visited, the punishment visited on the, to the third and fourth generation. 
But it does say there, to those who hate me. But then it says God will be benevolent or kind to a thousand generations of those who love him. And people talk about maybe there are generational curses. And maybe in my family, I'm just bound to repeat the sins of my father. No, you're not. By the way, that's Old Testament law. It was written to Israel. You're in the new covenant now. And if you want to break a trend of sin in your family's life, repent of it and stop it and start a new trend. You're not bound to repeat the sins of your father or your mother. You can break that chain by God's grace. But it doesn't, also doesn't mean that Mistakes that have been made in the past don't leave an imprint on future generations. And sometimes there are some proclivities towards certain behaviors that we kind of inherit from mom and dad, but it doesn't mean that we have to repeat them. My dad left our family when I was four. I never saw him again. That doesn't mean that I have to repeat what my dad did, and I didn't. In fact, I was more motivated to be a good father because of how my dad failed. Everybody with me? So this whole idea of generational curses, just put that aside. That's really not even biblical. Believers in the new covenant are under no curse. There is no condemnation, Romans 8, 1, to those who are what? In Christ Jesus. None. There's no curse on you. You're in the new covenant. Now now it really comes down to how you want to live. And so David, David should have seen through this. He should have seen through the behavior of his son He should not have sent for Tamar, but he did. And so Tamar, like a good daughter, went to her brother, ate to Amnon's house. Apparently all the royalty in Jerusalem had their own royal residence. Amnon seems to. He was lying down. She took dough, kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, baked the cakes. Uh, I mentioned to you they're probably something like a heart cake, and the problem was Amnon's heart because the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can understand it? It's desperately sick. She took the pan, dished them out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, have everyone go out of the room. So everyone went out from him. Now he said he was hungry. He said he wanted her to prepare food, but then she prepared it. Then he wouldn't eat because he was not hungry for the cakes. He wanted her. That's where his appetite lay. And Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes which she had made, brought them into the bedroom to her brother Amnon. And when she brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. I want to sleep with you. Let's be together. Now his plan has come to fruition. He says, lie with me, which is a way of uh, saying he wanted to be sexually intimate with her. And my sister has taken on an erotic tone. You can note Song of Solomon 4, verses 9 and 10 and verse 12. He, He now wants to be intimate with her. And she answered and said to him, no, my brother, 12, do not violate me. You're gonna see multiple times she says, no, no, no. Don't violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Uh, there is a rape that happens of, uh, by Shechem. He rapes Dinah in Genesis 34, 7. 
And it, it said in that account, this kind of thing does not happen in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. Now she tries to stop him and she confronts him and she confronts him with his identity. She says, you are a person of Israel. We are under Torah. We are under the law. This kind of thing ought not happen. And when you and I are faced with temptation and look, we're all tempted and to be tempted is not a sin. Even Jesus was tempted. To be tempted is not a sin. It's what you do with that temptation that really matters. And one of the things that you need to realize is that the Holy Spirit, when you're being tempted and your flesh wants to do something stupid, will often say something like this. Don't forget who you are. That's not how you behave as a son of the king, the ultimate king. Everybody with me? In the moment when you're tempted and you do have a decision to make, that's when you need to hear the voice of the Spirit above the voice of your flesh. And the flesh does war against the Spirit, Galatians 5, 17. And the two are contrary one to another, so sometimes you don't do what you want to do. We've all faced that before. And look, I'm up here telling you, I'm a man I'm the chief of sinners. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. When we were singing that, I was singing that for me. <laughs> to the Lord in gratitude, but knowing that's me. And so she tells him, don't do this. This is a disgrace. As for me, where could I get rid of my reproach? She would lose her virginity. As for you, 13, middle of the verse, you will be like one of the fools in Israel. Don't be a fool. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. She says, let's do this the right way. Go to the king and ask for my hand. But she may be just saying this as a ploy because technically uh, the law would not allow this. You can write down Leviticus 18.11 is one place uh, where it's, this is a no-no. The fool, Psalm 14.1 says in his heart, there is no God. Do you know if you keep reading in Psalm 14, the fool in that famous verse, it goes on to say, he says what he says, there's no God, for moral reasons. Please hear what I'm about to say. The verse goes on to say, they are all corrupt, they're all abominable, abominable. The fool says there is no God because he wants to live as if there is no God. He says that not based upon science or based upon what he senses inside or from the creative majesty of the world that cries out that there's a God. He says there's no God to get him off the hook so he's not under the demands of Scripture. That's why it happens. That's why people so quickly gravitated to the theory of evolution. The theory of evolution is bankrupt. It's a lie. It's been debunked and disproved. There, there is obviously change within a species, but not one species becoming another species. It does not exist. But people gravitated to it because then it allowed them to get away what they wanted to get away with. And Amnon, as he has shown in this account, he would not listen to her. He was stronger than she, 14. And so he violated her. The word speaks of humiliation, oppression, subjugation. And he lay with her. Now, the deed is done. He has overpowered her. 
There's no other way to say it. Amnon has raped his sister. But notice what happens next. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred. For the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love, and I think I'd put love in quotes, with which he loved, had loved her. So Amnon said to her, get up and go away. But she said to him, no, because this wrong in sending me away, this is going to just make matters worse, if you will, is greater than the other that you have done to me. Yet again, he would not listen to her. Basically, he got what he wanted, and then he hated her. And he kicked her out. Verse 17. He even called his, the, his young man, something like an attendant to him, who attended him and said, now throw this woman out of my presence and lock the door behind her. This woman is not actually the original Hebrew. It's a single syllable in Hebrew. It could be rendered this way. Send this out of my presence. Brutal. And I will tell you that this is often what happens with forbidden sexual sin. Someone is focused on doing something, they get what they want, they do the wrong, and then there's hatred. There's a psychological insight here, and it's profound. She was now a reminder of his sin. So, so he didn't want to look at her. So he had to get her out of the room, basically, so that she didn't remind him of his own wretchedness. Now, she had a long sleeve garment, for in this manner, the virgin daughters of the king dressed themselves in robes. It was a way of showing that they were virgins. Then his attendant took, uh, took her out and locked the door behind her. Now, this garment's going to become uh, something that she's going to tear because she has been torn up. But I want to read something from uh, a writer who uh, I would ask you young ladies to really key into what I'm about to read. He says, let me give you a friendly fatherly tip unto, unto all you young ladies who may be in the position of Tamar in that you have some fellow who's really pressing hard to have sex with you. He is, he is the soul of kindness. He's very attentive. He calls all the time. He opens the door for you. He brings you flowers, but he's pushing hard for a sexual relationship. Don't give in. If you really love him, make him wait until you're married. If he really loves you, he will. Over and over, time and again, the fellow will press and press until he has taken you to bed. And that's the last you will see or hear from him. You are no longer a challenge to him. He's conquered and he's off on new conquests. If you really love him and want him, make him wait. And if you really love God and love yourself, make him wait, close quote. I've talked to some people over the years about some of these subjects, and I've had people laugh in my face and say to me, do you really think it's realistic that a person could be a virgin until they're married? And I've said, yes. Do you have another question? Oh, no, we need to hand out condoms in high school because we know what's gonna happen. They're gonna have sex anyway, so let's just, let's just fess up to it. Let's get with reality and the fact is, you don't have to go with the flow, my brother, my sister. You don't. You don't have to do it the world's way. You can wait. You can do it God's way. Now, I know a lot of us have made our mistakes in this area. And so, again, I want you to read the account 
in the shadow of the cross. And I'm gonna give you some hope at the end of this story, but I want you to see what Tamar did. She put ashes on her head. This is a sign of mourning. She tore her long sleeve garment, which represented her virginity, because that was torn up now, which was on her. She put her hand on her head and went away, went out. They had kicked her out, crying aloud as she went. She had ashes, she had tore her garment. These are all things you'll see in your Bible over and over again, signs of mourning and grief. And Absalom, her brother, said to her, he saw, saw her in this emotional distress. Notice what he says. Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? It's like he knows. He, he could see the attraction as a brother. He knew there was some unhealthy stuff going on. And when he saw her, with this kind of emotional distress, he says, has Amnon, in essence, violated you? But now he says, and she may have just given him a nod like, yes, no words are recorded. Now he says, keep silent, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this matter to heart. It might be, don't blame yourself. Don't, don't, don't stew on it too long. Try to move forward. So Tamar remained and was desolate in her brother Absalom's house. He kind of became a kinsman redeemer to her in a sense. The father of peace, Absalom or Shalom, brought her in, tried to give her as much peace as possible. Now, when King David heard of all these matters, he was very angry or furious. Kind of like when Nathan told him that story that was about him, he was angry, right? Till he found out he was the man. David was mad, but he didn't do anything about it. I want you to hear something I'm about to say. David had lost his moral authority. Please hear this. If you are compromising as a man of God or as a Christian, and someone comes to you and says, I'm struggling with pornography, and you yourself view pornography, you lose your moral authority to speak into their life. David, what could he say? Hey, you shouldn't do, do that. Yeah. But David had just come off his own compromise. What moral authority did he have now since he was a man who had just done the same thing? Not exactly the same, but you get the point. And so Amnon has done this thing. David's mad. Absalom did not speak to Amnon, 22, either good or bad. Absalom hated Amnon, but he didn't really come out and show it. He kind of pushed it down in his heart because he had violated his sister Tamar. Now the story is going to fast forward to what Absalom does, and I'll just say this to you. What Absalom is about to do doesn't make things any better. Vengeance belongs to who? To the Lord. That's Romans 12, 19, where God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Romans 13, 4 and 5 says how vengeance is carried out carried out through the legal processes of governmental law, police, courts, and the like. That's Romans 13, 4 and 5. But here's what happens. It came about after two full years, so time's gone by. Absalom had sheep shears in Baal Hazor, that's about 15 miles from Jerusalem, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. Absalom came to the king, to David, and said, Behold, now your servants has, has sheep shears, Please let the king and his servants or his court go with your servants. So sheep shearing was a festive event, happened twice a year, celebratory. So hey, bring the court, dad, bring everybody. Now, this is not really what he wants, but he's setting something up. The king said to Absalom, no, my son, we, we should not all go. That's a lot of people. We would be a burden to you. Although he urged him, 
He would not go, but he blessed him. Hey, thanks for the invite, son, but boy, that, that's just too much. Now, Absalom has a plan. Absalom said, if not, okay, if not the whole court, dad, please let my brother Amnon go with us. I mean, he's the crown prince. He can represent you at the party, at the festivities. Let him go. The king said to him, now David has a little radar going. Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, and as David has been shown to do, David let all the king's sons go with him. The future of the throne, the future of the, the covenant, if you will. And so Absalom commanded his servants, saying, See now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, when I say to you, strike Amnon, then put him to death. Do not fear, have not I myself commanded you, be courageous and be valiant. So now the king's sons come, there's a party going on, think of like a wedding type of event. Everybody's having a good time, they're enjoying some wine, they're enjoying some food. And all of a sudden, the servants of Absalom did to Amnon, just as Absalom had commanded. All the king's sons arose, each mounted his mule and fled. He gave the, uh, the order, strike Amnon, and they killed him. We have no detail about the scene, but it had to be brutal and bloody. There's a, one of your brothers laying on the ground. At something that should have been a happy occasion, here's somebody dead. And everybody fled. Everybody got on a mule and started to run away. As David had committed adultery, he made Uriah drunk, and then he murdered him. So Amnon committed incest, is made drunk, and he's murdered. And the sin of David and the warning that was given to him by God of judgment has come to him. Now, it was while they were on the way that the report came to David saying, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. Some, probably a rumor at this point because I don't know how word would have come to David so quickly. Then the king arose, tore his clothes. He lay on the ground. All his servants were standing by with clothes torn. They were devastated. They were in mourning. And Jonadab, now you remember this guy? The so-called friend of Amnon, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, his nephew, is uh, Jonadab to David, responded. He said, Do not let my Lord suppose they have put to death all the young men, the, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead, because by the intent of Absalom, this has been determined since the day he violated his sister Tamar. How does Jonadab know? How does Jonadab know that only Amnon is dead? How does Jonadab know what Absalom was feeling? He had buried it in his heart. Is it possible that Jonadab had become a confidant to Absalom and in some way set up this plan to kill Amnon, the so-called friend? Hey, bro, just pretend like you're sick and you can take advantage of your sister. Hey, Absalom, do you want to kill Amnon? Here's how to do it. When you have the sheep shearing thing, you could set it up, tell your dad this. Now, it's not in the text, but can you see this snake? playing both sides. You ever known a person like this who whispers in your ear sweet nothings? Oh, you're wonderful. <laughs> this is what you should do. And then over here, you walk in the door and they're whispering in this person's ear. Oh, watch out. It's kind of how the snake works. Always playing both sides of the equation. Shrewd. Maybe he had concocted the plan himself. 
Now, therefore, he says, do not let my lord, the king, take this report to heart, namely that all the king's sons are dead. Only Amnon is dead. Now, David had to be wondering, how does he know? Now, Absalom had fled, and the young man who was the watchman raised his eyes, looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. Jonadab said to the king, behold, the king's sons have come. See, according to your servant's word, so it happened. Maybe he'll like me now. He's playing all sides. It came about as soon as he had finished speaking that, behold, the king's sons came and lifted their voices and wept. They were in trauma. And also the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. Now Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, the king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. Literally, the Hebrew is all the days. He mourned for Amnon day after day and probably all of his days. And so Absalom fled. He fled in the other direction to Geshur on the other side of the Jordan. And he was there three years with his maternal grandfather. He kind of took uh, refuge, if you will, with grandpa as all of this took place. Now, I want you to turn to Philippians 3 and we're done. Philippians 3. Uh, oh, and, and here's the final verse before you turn there. The heart of the king of King David longed to go out to Absalom for he was comforted concerning Amnon since he was dead. All right. Over to Philippians 3. I was reading a commentary this week, and one writer says that the Hebrew is a little difficult in verse 39 of our text, Philippians 3, and that it may not be that David was really longing for Absalom, but that he was in turmoil with his emotions, and we can all understand that. In the next chapter, we will see some form of reconciliation between Absalom and David. At least they get to see each other again, and we'll dig that out a little bit more, but Here's what, here's what hit me, and uh, here's what I want to give you in terms of application. You might be asking, Pastor Michael, what do I do with this story? I think there's two things. One, I think the Old Testament accounts should give us hope. If God can use messed up people like this, he can use me too. And all God's people said, amen. These people are messed up. What is going on here? This is the people of God. This is the royal line. Yep. Should give you hope that God can use you too. Second application point, learning. We're supposed to learn from these accounts so that we don't repeat the mistakes that these people made. Amen? But some of us have already made our mistakes. And so we're like, well, what now? And that's why I want to leave you with this. Philippians 3.13 says, Brethren, Paul writing, 3.13, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing, literally, the I do is added by the translators. It just literally says, but one thing. Here's the one thing. The one thing actually is encapsulized in two things. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. We can't change the past. We've, you may have had something horrible done to you or you may have done something horrible. And as a Christian, the devil can continue to try to bring that into your face and say, you're no good, you're lousy. I mean, I imagine how many times Paul uh, had in his mind people he had imprisoned, the death of Stephen as he stood there and said he should die and he was just killed for being a Christian. 
And here's what Paul says is a remedy. This one thing. I've got to forget what's behind me. I can't change it. It's been dealt with at the cross, and that's where I'm going to take my refuge. And reaching forward, here's the image. It's, it's, it's Olympic imagery. Forgetting what lies behind. When you're running a race, you can't be looking back or you're going to get beat. And reaching forward to what's ahead. Here's literally the Greek. Stretching out towards the tape. I am trying to move forward in my life as I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Lord, thank you that 1 Corinthians 6 talks about how we had committed so many different sins, at least the Corinthians, but we could, we could apply this to us. But then it goes on to say, but you were washed, but you were justified, but you were sanctified. There's no excuse for what happens in this account, Lord. There's no excuse for our sin, and we won't make excuses for it. But Lord, we're also going to take refuge in the cross, whether it's us who were wounded or we wounded others or some combination thereof, Lord, we're gonna take refuge in the cross. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. And I pray, Lord, for your grace, your healing, your freedom to permeate every soul that's here this morning. I believe we had an appointment with this text this morning and I know that you knew who was going to be here, who would hear this, and that they needed to hear it, maybe to be able to move forward, maybe to experience some healing, maybe to take fresh refuge in the truth of the cross, and maybe to be warned not to do something stupid if they've been pondering a sin, a sexual sin, or something of that nature. I pray that this would stop people in their tracks, Lord. And I pray that you would just be doing a work in our hearts. And I'm gonna ask you as your heart and head is bowed, do you know the Redeemer? Do you know Jesus? Do you know the greater son of David? Have you met him? Have you come to him for forgiveness? Have you asked him to apply what he did at the cross to your life? Have you asked him to be your Lord and Savior? Have you said, Jesus, I believe you died on that cross for me. I believe that you were treated shamefully on that cross to bear my shame, my punishment, my sorrow. Do you open up your heart right now? Do you cry out to him? He's a forgiving God. He can give you a new start and a new heart. Tell him you believe in his death on the cross. Lord Jesus, I believe in your resurrection as well. Be my Lord. Pray it if it's you. Be my king. Save me. Father, for those who are crying out in their hearts and for those who just maybe need some fresh perspective or some encouragement, I pray that you would help us to move forward in Christ, to run in his victory and to preach the hope of Jesus Christ to the nations. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?